So I will pray and then we will dive into Mark chapter one. Father, we thank you today for the story of Jesus that we find in Mark chapter one. So we look at what he does here with disciples and with the people around him. Help us to learn from him. Help us to learn how to live our lives, how to respond to him, how to be faithful disciples of Jesus. Amen. Let's see here. What we're doing is we're reading the text together. So let me get over here. I will share my screen here so we can see the text together. Here's how my translation reads it from the NIV. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So that's what I see here. Uh, hey, good morning, Ed. Thanks for joining us today. This is what I see in the Gospel of Mark, starting at verse 16. And on my list of questions on this text, I have 15 questions. I, I don't know if any of you have looked at the text and formulated your own questions. If you have and you're there on Facebook, feel free to put your questions in the comments there and we'll try to deal with them. My first question is, why was Jesus walking beside the Sea of Galilee? Was he in a habit of doing this? For me, I, I'd walk around along the Sea of Galilee just because it's a scenic place to walk, calm, peaceful, the, the waves lapping at, at my feet, or maybe there's crowds there. Maybe there's uh, fishermen, not just Simon and Andrew and James and John, but lots of fishermen there. And I'm out looking at them fish and trying to learn from them how maybe I could be a fisherman someday too. Or maybe I'm just out breathing the nice air, the, the fresh air of the outdoors. But why was Jesus doing it? Was he in the habit of doing this? Did he regularly go out walking along the Sea of Galilee? We don't know, but we wonder about it. My second question is, did Jesus know Simon and Andrew before he called them? Did they know Jesus? We see some indication elsewhere that at least Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. So it's possible that, that Jesus had gotten connected with them through a mutual connection with John the Baptist. It's also possible that they had known each other living in Capernaum, and they'd been together up there. It's possible that they were distantly related to each other, that they were distant kin, that they were cousins of Jesus. So it's possible. We don't know. So let's see. Uh, third question, was Jesus specifically looking for Simon, Andrew, James, and John? If so, why? This plays into the, the other question. If he's out there walking along the lake looking for particular disciples, was he looking for these particular guys, these particular young men? We don't know. It's also possible that there were other people out there that he called also, 
But those other people said no. They said, no, Jesus, we don't want to follow you. Or Jesus, why don't you wait till we're finished fishing? Why don't you wait till another time, a time that's more convenient, a time that works better in our lives? And Mark doesn't tell us about them because they're not relevant to his story. If Jesus was looking for them, was there, were there some characteristics in their lives that he knew about, that he was looking for? Was there something about uh, James and John and Andrew and Simon that attracted them to him? We don't know. Uh, question number four follows on this also. What qualifications did Jesus see in them? Was it that Jesus said, hey, my, my, my crew of disciples, my, my group, we're going to need to eat. And having fish to eat, that's going to be a really good thing to do because we're going to need our protein. So if I get some fishermen in my group of disciples, that's going to be a really good thing for us. So, yeah, I need to, I need to get some fishermen. Uh, maybe we don't know that. Maybe it's that Jesus saw some responsiveness in them that they had a tendency to respond to God. Maybe, maybe that's where he connected with them back again when maybe at least one of them, Andrew, was a disciple of John the Baptist. What qualifications does Jesus see in us when he calls us? Or does he see any qualifications in us? Does Jesus call us? Does Jesus call you to be a disciple? Because he sees something in, in your life that makes you usable to him, that, that makes you qualified for his kingdom activity? Or is it, as some preachers have said, not so much that he calls the qualified, but that he qualifies the called, that he calls us, that he calls us universally to follow him, and that calling us as, as we respond to him, then he makes us qualified. I'm, I'm pretty much inclined in that direction. Question number five goes to our appropriation of this kind of story. What habits do we have where, when we encounter people? Do we keep our eyes open and pay attention to them? Jesus has sent us out in the Great Commission to make disciples, to extend his call to the people around us. When we do that, are there characteristics that we look for? Are there habits that we look for in their lives that would lead us to invite them to follow Jesus, to become with us disciples that are following Jesus too? We don't know. Could be. So let's see. My screen is doing odd things here. So let's Okay, uh, question number six. What does it mean to be a fisher of people? How did Simon and Andrew understand this invitation? What metaphors would Jesus use for calling people who work in other professions? Well, we know that from what we read here that these guys were not fishermen with uh, fishing poles and hooks. These guys fished with nets. They went out in their boat, they threw out their net, their net then would bring up fish. When Jesus invited them to follow him and become fishers of men, fishers of people, did they imagine that they would be going 
out and about where people are with their nets and throwing their nets over people and hauling them in? I don't think so. How would they have understood it? Could, could they understand that just as you go out to catch fish and bring them in, that you're going to go out and catch people with ways, means, methods that are appropriate to catching people and drawing them in? In, in what way would their catching of people, their drawing people in, be like Jesus's drawing people in? Are there other metaphors that Jesus would use with other professions, other ways of drawing people in? Maybe so. Maybe you can think of some. Uh, if, if you can think of some, leave some comments here on Facebook page and let me know what you think. Uh, seventh question, what does being a fisherman look like for us? How do we invite people to join in this fishing? What qualifications do we look for in those we invite? Again, still following in the same track. When you go out as a disciple of Jesus, when you go out as someone who is sharing the good news, as, as someone who is joining in Jesus' call of making disciples, of bringing people into being kingdom participants like you are, how are you doing that? What does that being a fisher of people look like for you? Now, I'm afraid too often in the church, we leave that to the professionals. Well, that's why we pay the preacher. That's the preacher's job is to go out and bring people in. Well, one of the unfortunate things for us preachers, speaking from my own experience, is we spend a lot of time with people that are already on the inside. We spend a lot of time taking care of the sheep we already have, the people already here. Pastoral care means going out and visiting our people, interacting with them, creating programs for them, writing sermons, doing lessons for the people that are already in, on the inside. And our primary relationships are with insiders. Now, unfortunately, that's also the case usually with church members. If you've been in the church, any church, for any length of time, your primary relationships tend to be with other church people. Now, it might be that the church people that you have your primary relationships aren't necessarily people in your church, but are members of other churches. And our calling is not to do what we call shuffling of the sheep, to go out and get, hey, well, there's a lot of Baptists out there. Let's get all the Baptists so that they'll come to the Methodist church. Or Catholics, look at all those Catholics. Let's get the Catholics to come to the Methodist church or the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals. No, our calling to make disciples is to go to people that have no church connection, people who have not yet said yes to Jesus or who, if they have said yes to Jesus, are not yet connected to a body. What are we doing to connect with them? What are we doing to build relationships with them, to draw them in? One thing we could do is every morning when we get up, it's good to start every morning with prayer. We could pray a simple prayer like, Lord, help me see the people around me today. Help me relate to them. Open my eyes to them and show me the ones that you want me to invite to you. Let my life be a witness to them an open book of your invitation to them. Now, my eighth question, why did Simon and Andrew immediately leave their nets? Who was inconvenienced by their doing so? How essential was it that they respond immediately rather than saying something like, sure, Jesus, let us just finish what we're doing first. Okay, 
the, the question for us for them is, did Jesus expect them to drop everything and immediately respond, immediately follow him? That could inconvenience a lot of people, like if they have people working with them, working for them, if they're the employers or if they're the employees, it could really inconvenience people. Hey, where are y'all going? We, we need you to do this job. People are going to go hungry. If you're not here to, to bring in this fit, this catch, Simon and Andrew. But they responded immediately. Well, what about us? When, when Jesus calls us to anything, whether it's the initial call to become his disciples, the, the call to take up his kingdom work, does Jesus expect us <coughs> to, be, to do that immediately? Or does he expect us to get our affairs in order and then follow him? Now, the challenge with getting our affairs in order is sometimes our affairs are mighty complicated. What does it look like to follow him immediately, to respond faithfully? What about the people we work with? How patient are we with them? Do we give them a chance to respond, a chance to wait? Question number nine, how essential is it that we respond immediately to Jesus? Is it ever permissible to finish what we're doing first? This just extends the, the question I just asked. Can we wait? Does it ever matter that we respond immediately? I think sometimes it does matter that we respond immediately. That Jesus is hauling in a catch and he needs us to respond. Or we might think of when Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus said, okay, disciples, here, here are five loaves, two fish. I'm going to break them up little pieces. You take them out there. Oh, Jesus, we're, we're busy doing this other stuff. Uh, give, us, give us an hour and, and, and then we'll come do it. I think Jesus needed immediate cooperation. Uh, question number 10, how many of the things Jesus calls us to, to do that require leaving everything? Uh, let's see, I don't think I wrote that right. How many of the things Jesus calls us to require us to leave everything behind? Some things don't. I, I don't think that Jesus' call in our lives requires us immediately to abandon our jobs abandon our families, abandon our homes, and go do other things. Now, sometimes it might. But which of those things that Jesus calls us to requires us to make total, drastic changes in our life? Some things do. Some things don't. I was talking to somebody recently, and this person lives in another state, and he and his family have been renting a place, paying month to month. And the person they rent from just told them yesterday that they have to be out in 30 days because she has somebody that's willing to pay uh, to sign a five-year lease and pay more. Makes good sense from a business point of view, doesn't it? But what do you do if you're my friends? Do you immediately change your life and go out there? Or do you get a lawyer and protest because that's not really legal to do? You look for another place to live. How do you fit that in with Jesus' call? Uh, let's see, question 11. What did Simon and Andrew think they were getting themselves into? Did they have any idea what this become fishers of men, this follow Jesus, this leave everything and become a disciple of Jesus? Did they have any idea what that implied for them, what it would require of them? Did they have any idea? 
and we know from reading the gospel later that it didn't, that it would include Jesus dying, being crucified as a common criminal. I don't think so. How about us? When Jesus calls us, how much do we think we need to know and understand and have specified in advance? Okay, Jesus, you want me to follow you? You want me to obey you? You want me to take up this calling? Spell it out in advance for me, and then I'll think about it. Uh, question 12. Did Jesus know James and John before he called them? Did they know Jesus? Again, this is just asking the same kind of question we asked about Simon and Andrew. Uh, question 13, again, is a repetition. What qualifications did Jesus see in them? Question 14, what significance is there to Jesus calling two sets of brothers to begin with? One of the things that I've wondered about through my life is how much calling is an individual thing and how much it's a family thing. My perception is that I was called to be a preacher. And my call to be a preacher impacts and shapes my family. Because as a Methodist preacher, I'm sent to various places by the bishop. Bishop can at any moment say, okay, you're no longer appointed to this church, but you're going to be appointed to this other church. And it might be my family is really excited about making that move. It might be my family hates to make that move. They don't want to do that. It might be that they don't want to leave where we are, or they don't want to go to the place that I'm being sent. So my calling has repercussions, major repercussions for my family. Is, is it ever possible that my family has a calling too? That it's not just me dragging them along for my call. And then, then I look at my particular family. Our oldest child, as some of you know, is disabled. To what degree is having a disabled child, now an adult disabled child, a shaper and, de and a determinant of my calling? I, I know there's some things in my life I haven't been able to do, some aspects of my calling that, that I've had to say no to, because I also have that calling to take care of my child, to be a dad to her, to, to offer her things in life. She couldn't have otherwise. So as Christians, we have multiple callings. Our callings have multiple dimensions. It's very challenging to figure out how to live them out together. Because uh, my, my life would look very different if I just said, okay, daughter, I'm called to do this, so you just lump it. Or, okay, wife, I'm called to go here, and I don't have any call for you to go with me, so... Hey, yeah, just make it the best you can on your own. I don't think so. So I'm called to be married, called to be a pastor, called to be a dad. I do all that. Okay, question 15. This is my last question on, on this paragraph, this section. What did Zebedee and the hired men think of James and John deserting them to follow Jesus? Well, it was Zebedee was the father of James and John. Was Zebedee say, go boys, go, because he was really excited. And now he could brag as a, as a dad and say, okay, yeah, my sons got called by Jesus, the rabbi. They're really something. Could he then bask in their glory of being disciples of this new famous rabbi going around? Or did 
Zebedee think as a fisherman? What's, what's going to happen in my business? I've raised my boys here to take over my business. So maybe someday I could retire. Where are you going, boys? I need you here. Again, we don't know what Zebedee thought of it. We don't know what James and John thought of it. But we know that they followed Jesus. Okay, let's try the next paragraph here. The next paragraph. Uh, let's see, I'm going to stop the share and let's see how this is working. Now we're going to go to the next part. Share the screen again. Gospel of Mark. Share. Okay. The text here uh, reads like this. It says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Jesus uh, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Okay, my questions uh, about this section start with, who is the they? It says they went to Capernaum. Who is they? Is it just Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, John? Is it just the five of them? Or, or, or is Jesus called other disciples already that Mark hasn't mentioned to us that are part of this company? Second question, why did they go to Capernaum? Why there and not someplace else? Or had Jesus been going to many cities, many towns, many villages? And this is just the one that Mark happens to tell us about. To what degree, if any, was Jesus already associated with Capernaum? He was associated with them. In what ways? Uh, question number three, what were they doing in town before the Sabbath came? How did whatever they were doing shape what happened later? Were they perhaps going all around Capernaum saying, hey guys, you need to be in synagogue this, this weekend because Jesus is going to be teaching. It's going to be really great. Or were they going around praying and healing people? Or was Jesus out on the streets teaching? We don't know. Question number four. Why did Jesus take up teaching in this synagogue? Had he done it there before? Did he take the teaching upon himself, or was he asked by others to do it? What was the content of his teaching? I mean, we don't, we don't know if Jesus was the regular rabbi for that synagogue. We don't know if Jesus had ever taught there before. Why was he teaching this Sunday? Or was it just the, or this Saturday, this Friday night, to this, this Sabbath that, say, the rabbi looks down and says, Oh, Jesus is back. Let's have Jesus come up and do some teaching. 
Question number five, in what way was Jesus teaching with authority? Why did he teach with authority? Why did the teachers of the law not teach with authority? I'm, I'm going to ask a question here. When Jesus is teaching, is he thinking, okay, Lord, give me authority here. And, and if he did, what did he mean by give me authority? What, what exactly was he looking for when he was teaching with authority? And was it something in his mind? Was Jesus thinking, I am now teaching with authority? Or was it something in the disciples' mind or the, the congregants in the synagogue that day? Were they thinking, oh, yeah, authority, this is what we perceive. And we might also ask that of the teachers of the law, the, the scribes. Did they set out, did they intend to teach with authority? Or, or again, was it something that the audience, the congregation perceived or didn't perceive? Question number six, is teaching with authority a purely good thing? Would it have been better if the teachers of the law had taught that way? Is teaching with authority something we're supposed to do today? I confess as a preacher and teacher that sometimes I've been in situations where I teach or I preach in such a way that it, it feels like people are really listening to what I say, that what I say matters. But there have been many other times where I'm teaching or I'm preaching, and I really get the idea that people really aren't all there. Sure, they're physically there. They might even be looking at me. They might even be tracking me as I move around, but they're not there. They're not really listening. They're not into it. I don't know in those situations how much of that is me and how much of it is them uh, or external distractions. Also, I wonder when I teach and preach, how many people take it as truth, as I'm expounding on truth, the truth of God, the truth of God's word, and how many of it, well, that's what the preacher says, that's just the preacher's opinion, and interpret it as opinion. Don't know. Let's see, question seven. Hearing Jesus teach, what category did his hearers in Capernaum put him in? Another teacher of the law? A prophet? Or something else? Did Jesus take himself to be a teacher of the law? Because remember, Jesus is contrasted here when he's teaching with authority with teachers of the law, with the scribes. Did any of the audience think Jesus is a scribe, a teacher of the law? How did Jesus understand what he was doing? Or was he a prophet? Somebody called by God? given words by God, to speak God's word into the particular situation of that time and place. Question eight, before the man with an unclean spirit spoke up, now unclean here is another translation, maybe a little un, literal on translation of, of what the version translates as impure. Before the man with an unclean spirit spoke up, did Jesus know he was there? If so, was any of the teaching he'd done up to that point directed toward that event? Had Jesus been teaching on unclean spirits on dealing with with them don't know question nine what caused the man who had the impure spirit to cry out was this a normal occurrence in synagogues in that day what was it like every every time they had a sabbath service was there somebody there with an unclean spirit that that spoke up and said hey i'm, I'm gonna cause a ruckus here i'm gonna cause trouble or or help me i'm i'm oppressed by this unclean spirit 
question 10. What is an impure spirit? What does it mean for a person to have one? Now, in our normal translations, a lot of times or our thinking, we think, oh, this is a demon. Yeah, it, it might be. That's not what the text says. The text says unclean spirit. Is this the kind of thing that we should be concerned about in our own setting? When, when we have church on Sunday morning, once we get to do that again, should we expect or, or imagine that there could be people there in the congregation that have an unclean spirit or being influenced by an unclean spirit? If so, what do we do about it? Uh, question 11. Is possession language the right way to talk about this experience? Because sometimes we talk about being demon-possessed or having a demon, having an unclean spirit. Which way is, is the possession happening? Is, is, the, is it something I have? I have an unclean spirit? Or is the unclean spirit having me? Or does, is language failing us there? Question 12, how do we recognize impure, unclean spirits for what they are? Uh, that's, that's a challenge. If, if we have somebody, say, in our church that has an unclean spirit, how do we recognize it? Is it that they're grouchy? Is it they're foaming at the mouth? Is it that they're gossiping? Good questions to ask. Question 13, was Jesus generally known in Capernaum as Jesus of Nazareth? Now, this, this is probably a fairly trivial question, but Nazareth isn't too far from, from Capernaum, and, and maybe there were other Jesuses around that day. I mean, Jesus is just the Greek form, the English form, or the Greek form of the name Joshua. Maybe there's lots of people with that name running around. And there at Capernaum, generally, there we generalize maybe there's Jesus of Capernaum or Jesus of, of uh, Main Street, and there's Jesus of Nazareth. Question 14, how did the man know? that Jesus was the Holy One of God. What did he mean by this? Was, Jesus, was his knowledge of Jesus' identity a good thing or a bad thing? What effect did his identification of Jesus have on the other people in the synagogue? Okay, there's a really complex question here. The, the man with the unclean spirit says that he knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. It, did Jesus think of himself that way? Did Jesus say, hey, yeah, I, I am the Holy One of God. Did the people in the synagogue that way, did the, were they inclined to think, oh, yeah, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Holy One of God. And if they thought that way, what would they mean by that? Would it be good for Jesus to encourage the unclean spirit to say, oh, yeah, he's the Holy One of God? Or would advertising by an unclean spirit be something you don't want? Uh, question 15. And I know I'm going pretty quick here, but uh, we only have so much time. Question 15, why would the impure spirit think Jesus had come to destroy them? Notice also the plural here. Have you come to destroy us? Is that there is a plurality of unclean spirits there? Is it that unclean spirits tend to speak in the plural about themselves? Or, or is he thinking myself and this man I'm possessing, having, demonizing, influencing? Is that to them? Why would, why would that spirit think that Jesus had come to destroy them? What would destruction look like? Don't know. Question 16. Why does Jesus command the spirit to be quiet? Is the spirit saying something 
Jesus doesn't want said? Or is he just putting it in his place? They just, I don't want an unclean spirit speaking at all. So be quiet. Is that ever appropriate in our churches? Is it ever the case that we might have somebody in church that's saying things that are leading people astray? Do we ever, is it ever appropriate for the preacher or anybody else to say, be quiet, you unclean spirit? Might be a little challenging there. Might be, preacher does that. Somebody might be saying, hey, I need to call the Diaz. Get this preacher out of here. Uh, let's see, question 17. Why did the spirit shake the man when it came out? Was the spirit visible when it came out? If so, what did it look like? Did the spirit shriek or was it the man shrieking? Again, questions we don't know the answer to. I don't know if any of you have dealt with this kind of situation. I, I have never done an exorcism in my life. I have dealt with people that seemed to me that maybe I was dealing with an unclean spirit. I have not seen one. I've heard stories of people dealing with casting out unclean spirits and then seeing some sort of creature escape. But that's just speculation. Uh, question 18, what was the connection between Jesus' teaching and his exorcism? Was Jesus teaching on unclean spirits? Was he teaching on exercising them? Don't know. Uh, question 19, what did the audience perceive to be new about Jesus' teaching? In what way was his teaching different? Not just in style, being, being teaching with authority, but in what way was it new? Was the content new? compared to what they'd been hearing in Sabbath teaching generally. And question 20, what was the content of the news about Jesus that spread through Galilee? Did Jesus want this news about him to be spread? What was it that Jesus was, hey, yeah, there's a guy here, a prophet maybe, that can cast out demons, that can cast out unclean spirits. Is that the news that went around? Or is it, hey, there's a teacher here that speaks with authority, not like the teachers of the law. Is that the news that went around? Or was Jesus teaching in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is available to you here and now. Come join in. Is that the news that was going around? Again, we don't know. Now, as we go through this, you, you notice how many of my questions we don't know the answers to. Occasionally, these interpretive questions, there, there are answers in the text. And we can reason them out, we can figure them out. But a lot of times, we don't know the answers. It's hard to come by. So I encourage you, go ahead and, and pick up your Gospel of Mark and work through the rest of chapter one and come up with your own questions. See what questions occur to you, because I'm sure the questions that occur to me aren't necessarily the same ones that occur to you. And the questions that occur to you might be a blessing to me as I hear them and learn from them, and a blessing to the other people during the study. So what's coming up next? Well, coming up Sunday morning at 10, we have adult Sunday school that we'll be doing here in the same place. That'll be 10 a.m. We have worship. Worship will be online at YouTube at 9 and uh, at, at 11 o'clock on Facebook. I invite you to come join us. Also encourage you to share this with others. Share this, uh, this video with other people shared on your timeline on Facebook, the more we get the word out, the more we can connect with people and pray that it'll do them some good and that it's not just me spewing hot air and talking. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these stories, for Jesus calling Simon and Andrew and James and John. 
help us join in that that experience of a call, the call of Jesus, and also join in the calling other people to follow us as they did, to become fishers of people. And, and Lord, give us discernment as we interact with people out there. If there are people around us, people in our neighborhood that are suffering from unclean spirits, let us have a role. Let us be a part in bringing them deliverance and healing from them. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, good to see you all today. See you later.